I've always been fond of this story from Del Close, the father of modern improv, and he says, A master skydiver jumps from a plane and does his tricks for a full minute. On the ground below, his fans and family watch him through binoculars, proud and cheering. He finishes his show and pulls his cord. The parachute expands out and rips to shreds in the wind. The spectators gasp, but are seasoned enough to know that this is not the end. Sure enough, unfazed, the skydiver pulls the cord for his reserve chute, and the reserve chute expands out and rips to shreds in the wind. Now, on the ground below, everyone starts to cry. They know what he knows. There is nothing to be done, nothing that can help him now. There is only the earth rushing up to meet him, relentless and unforgiving, an impossible blur. A few moments pass, the crowd watching in sadness and horror. It's then that they see him right himself in the rushing wind, and for the rest of his fall, he continues doing his tricks and his stunts, the most beautiful spins and tucks and figures carved out of the rushing air, each more wonderful than the last, up, down, until the earth swallows him. We are, each of us, headed for that same earth. The question is whether we fall screaming in agony or we fall doing our tricks. Very nice. I feel like I've heard that before. I'm familiar with uh, Del Close, is that right? Yeah, Del Close. But um, that is a great, that is like a great little story and a great metaphor. Obviously, in this episode that we will discuss today, there's uh, some talk of parachuting. But I think even further than that, maybe we can apply that story, that anecdote, what you would call it. Um, We could apply that to... The series in total, like how is it going to end, how is it going to, what's its final flourish, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think on like a subtext level, you know, it applies to like a lot of things. It applies to the show, obviously, the episode, and even to our podcast to a degree. That's true. It's uh, it's a lot to think about now that we're at the end of Northern Exposure and the end of our podcast. I mean, it's not technically over we'll be back to discuss to do our sort of series retrospective mm-hmm. um at the end of every season we like to go back and talk about this season as a as a whole but after this we'll have to talk about the entire series um but just to touch back on what you're hinting at charles yeah this is the this is going to be pretty much the end of our podcast uh coming at us really fast as we're like falling to the earth like that uh parachuter and um <sighs> How can I say this? Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy journey. Like Northern Exposure has always been a big part of my life, but now it is definitely like, I don't have any tattoos, but it feels like I've tattooed Northern Exposure on my body because I've just <laughs> spent so many years watching the show and now making a somewhat public, I don't know if you would call it spectacle, but just making this a sort somewhat public part of my life. I know mm-hmm. like we don't attach our last names to this podcast. We're trying to stay somewhat an- anonymous, but... So many of our friends have been introduced to the show because mm-hmm. that's part of this podcast. And it's been, well, I should say, thank you so much, Charles, for joining us, for joining me and doing this podcast in the first place. Did you think we would make it this far when you started? I, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I have to preface, thank you, Lee, for inviting <laughs> me on to this. Because I remember, I, I, I remember like you telling me that you wanted to do a podcast on Northern Exposure in like 2015, around there. Yeah, And I was saying like, oh, that sounds really cool. 
But I didn't know anything about Northern Exposure and I wasn't interested really in Northern <laughs> Exposure. So I was like, all right, well, that's really nice. And then I think a year later around there, I think I just asked you and I was saying like, hey, were you still wanting to do that podcast? Because I think I would be down like just to kill time. <laughs> like, let's just do it. And you were yeah. like, yeah, let's do it. And yeah, th- that's basically how it started. There was no real grand ambition or some um, epiphany. It was just something that we both wanted to do. Uh, you out of a love for the television show, me wanting to kill some time. <laughs> and we were like, yeah. And this is where we ended up on. And I will say that it is really interesting that for you, Lee, you gained, you already had this deep appreciation and love for this show. And now you're making it a declaration for all of these people to share in it, which is in and of itself is incredibly special because oftentimes we will get emails from other individuals from across the world telling us like, hey, we just discovered your podcast. I had no idea this existed. And I'm glad that other people are exploring this, that I'm not the only one that's alone in knowing this show's existence. And you two are out here going through it episode by episode and sharing in your love for it. And I think that's amazing too. But for me, I would say personally, I think that the show has helped me, uh, I guess like the best way to describe it would be that I can analyze things a little bit more critically. I I, I think that this show... Like every week we have to try to do that. It's like it forces us to think more critically. Exactly. And when you do a hundred episodes, you get like a little (laughs) bit better. Like you're not going to get worse. (laughs) Like unless your takes are just bad. So I think that it taught me that in that like, oh, well, like think about the placements of the word. Think about the dialogue. Think about all those things in combination Mm -hmm. with the cinematography and the directing and all those decisions. It's not even including the actor's choices themselves. That's all conglomerating into one thing called Northern Exposure. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to break it down week by week. And I want to say that for me, I think that I've grown in that skill. And so even if I hated this show, which I don't, but even if I did, I think that that is a tremendous gift to have, to be able to analyze and learn the intricacies of every part that goes into creating a television show. Yeah. And I think that was a big part of my reluctance to start a podcast was because I never thought I was the type of person who would have um, smart thoughts about art and media. I mean, I definitely watched a lot of movies. I went to film school, as we talked about on the podcast, and I definitely had some, you know, I, I had some critical capacities, you know, to, to critically analyze things, but I didn't think of myself as that type of person. And I still don't really think like that today. I think there are people who are, uh, much more, what's the word, are, are much better at really kind of diving into, into the, into the art, I guess. Um, but the truth is since we do this every week, the more that you do it and just, if you're watching a show, trying to, open your mind and discover what it's trying to tell you. A lot of times like TV, whether it be a TV show, a movie, any piece of art, it's not trying to be mysterious. You know, it has a Mm -hmm. point, like it wants to make you feel something. So just being open to it, I think, um, you know, like I said, I don't think I'm the most um, perceptive person out there, but uh, a lot of times the art just wants to speak to you. So 
If you're trying to look at it in a critical mindset, it will speak to you for sure. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to our mission statement where we said it in episode one, where we wanted to overanalyze Northern exposure. We wanted to be in the territory of being like, are we thinking a little bit too much on there? And then Mm -hmm. we came to the conclusion that it's good in a way, (laughs) as long as, you know, I'm not saying that's always the right answer or there even is a right answer, but I think it's good to expand your boundaries Mm -hmm. and believe that there can be a deeper meaning in there. So even if you're that skydiver and you're coming down and plummeting to the earth, we're still trying to mine something out of here. We're trying to find something that we can then attach to ourselves and turn that around on itself and say that this is the power of media. This is its ability to help you grow. Definitely. This is... uh this is the kind of conversation I hope we talk about uh, in our series retrospective. And I also don't want to um, shunt this away. Like, obviously, if we're feeling it, <laughs> we, this is what we should be talking about in this episode. But uh, we do have a topic to focus on. Today's episode, the final episode of Northern Exposure. It's called Tranquility Base, Our Town. Season 6, episode 23. I guess we should mention on, we, we streamed this on Amazon Prime. And uh, on Amazon Prime, the did we mention this already on the podcast? The ordering is a little off in the last season. So on Prime, there's the episode Zarya, which is, I think, season six, episode seven. But on Prime, it's listed as the final episode of season five, which I think it was originally slated to be the season finale for season five. But because it's misplaced into season five, it's listed that way on Amazon Prime, it kind of shunts the numbers on season six. So don't be confused if you're trying to watch this on Amazon Prime. It'll show up as the 22nd episode, but this is the 23rd episode of season six. Charles, thoughts now that we've we've landed on the final episode? What what did you think? I am wild about (laughs) Thornton Wilder's Our Town, the play. (laughs) But that does not factor much into this episode, does it? (laughs) Okay. Maybe. I'm trying to think if there are any... Because, sorry to cut you off. uh, Obviously, there's a... There's a big musical number at the end of the episode. Mm. That's probably what the parenthetical is um, talking about. The parenthetical is, is our town. But does it have any connection to um, to the play, maybe? Could, can we make any? Yeah, I think okay. you definitely can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like anything can be connected to Thorn Wilder's our town. That's like the uh, <laughs> ubiquity it's of the it. the piece or whatever. It's like the seminal. <laughs> well, as a whole, uh, it definitely was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So I had read that they had canceled the entire show mm-hmm. by the time Balls had aired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when they pulled the plug on the television show. And the episodes were already filmed. So they yeah. couldn't retroactively go back and, you know, rearrange the plot lines to make it more suitable for a last moments ever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it still kind of works out. Yeah. It, it's got some big punches in there. And... I don't know if like the montage was like planned or they still could have like edited that in at the end. That's what I was going to say. It's like they definitely shot it. So they knew that they wanted like a closing montage for the season finale. But I imagine that the song may have been chosen after they realized that the the series was over. Because it's a Mm -hmm. the lyrics in the song, the feeling of the song is kind of a really, it's a really good uh, closing number for a series if you know that the series is going to end. So right. maybe maybe they chose that knowing that they had already been canceled, but 
the I truth wonder, of the matter is they they already shot all that footage, so they didn't know when they shot the footage. Like the, right, right, the picture, right. You know? But I wonder in, in like an alternate universe, was there like a different ending? Like does the show end on like oh, a I murder s- mystery? I see what you're saying. Like, yeah. like so they so they what we're getting at is that they they shot this whole episode before they knew that they were going to be canceled. So did the showrunners? have it written down like in a show Bible, like we're going to this uh, conclusion point where there's a murder, like what you're, what are you saying? Like, like a murder mystery. Like they something. have an insight in goal. They just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. And then no. they were like, all right, never mind. We're canceled. We got to re- <laughs> rewrite it. Rewrite it. Montage. <laughs> yeah. They're rewriting in the editing room essentially. Cause they've, they've shot everything and they're trying to figure out a nice closing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say that there is one neat thing that I did not realize about Northern Exposure that they, they capitalize on this one, which is where Maurice wants a family. Yeah. And he finally gets it, or at least the initial steps of one, whenever he proposes to Barbara and she says yes. If we rewind back to episode one, that's when Joel goes into Sicily, Alaska, and Maurice is the one that introduces him. And he is the one that pitches to Joel that he wants this to be the next Alaskan Riviera. Mm-hmm. He wants the town to grow. But mm-hmm. now, in the last episode, he's having a family to grow. And that is like his big arc difference. So yeah. instead of thinking about business booming, the economy is doing great for this little town of Sicily, he's saying, you know what? What's I'm going to take it more personal. Yeah. I'm going to start a family. And that's the real growth. And I think that's kind of neat. I was like, oh, okay. I see. I see what they're doing with Maurice here. Yeah, there's a moment in the episode where he tells someone that he says, I've accomplished all my other dreams. You know, mm-hmm. like he went to the, uh, wait, he didn't go to the moon. He went to space, um, you know, building Sicily into what it is today. Uh, he counts many successes in his life, but family was one thing he thought he never uh, accomplished until the end of this episode where he begins, like you said, it's sort of the first uh, stepping stones towards starting a family. Yeah. So I'll say that that is its shining moment. Now, is the whole episode sunshines and rainbows? Eh, (laughs) We'll get into it. But before we do, Lee, who are the writers and directors for this final episode? So once again, Tranquility Base, parentheses, Our Town, directed by Michael Fresco. And he's directed a lot of episodes, like a dozen or more of Northern Exposure. Some of my favorites, Dateline Sicily, Thanksgiving, Hello, I Love You, I Feel the Earth Move, Dinner at 7.30, Upriver. Um, and of course, today's episode, I mean, he's directed a few more as well that I didn't list. I was just trying to give you the, the short list of my favorites. The writers were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green and Jeff Melvoin. I think this is the first time that the, those three have written together because it's usually Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green together. Mm-hmm. Um, the air date, July 26, 1995. As we know, um, when the cancellation was announced, it was announced that the final episode would air on July 26, 1995. And um, yeah, I mean, Charles, we watched this together. We're sitting in the same room. Uh, I kind of jotted down notes on a sort of like a legal pad. Normally I'll be watching on my computer. I'll be typing away. I'll pause the episode, which we did. We paused the episode as we were watching to jot down a few notes, but we're pretty much kind of flying off the cuff on this one. I have my notes that we can follow in the legal pad, but basically what I'm proposing to you is I think we just move in chronological order with this episode. There are certain plot lines that we could separate, but it 
this whole episode is almost like a bottle episode contained at Tranquility Base. Like everything happens at this resort. So I think we could go in order unless you have any objections. No, let's go for that. So it begins with the introduction to this lodge. I don't think we get the name of it in the first scene, um, but we later learn that it's called Tranquility Base. But Maurice is bringing Barbara Szymanski to, I guess, this lodge that he had built out in some parcel of land that he has. And um, he's showing her this place, this sort of magnificent utopia that he's created. And um, Ed, Ed enters the picture for a moment. He's carrying some board games. He's going to be working for Maurice throughout this episode sort of as like, uh, I don't know, one of the main laborers at Tranquility Base. What would you call that? Like Basically like, uh, what do you call the hotel worker? Yeah, like a, he's not really a bellboy or bellhop, but he's just well, he kind, kind of... kind of is. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. He's just he's kind of like... He's getting the luggage. He's pretty much everything uh, at this, at this quote-unquote <laughs> hotel. Um, we understand that they're expecting guests and... If it's not clear here, it definitely becomes clear soon that a lot of the townsfolk from Sicily are coming to Tranquility Base for like a weekend stay or something like that. Mm -hmm. And before we really get into too much of the plot, something I was thinking about while watching the episode, just the idea of Tranquility Base. It seems like, especially from Phil and Michelle's perspective, it's like a sort of vacation. You know, it's like we're getting away from Sicily and we're having some R&R out in like, you know away from the city, quote unquote, going out into the wilderness and uh, sort of like a cabin experience. And to me, um, that always kind of felt like what Sicily was, right? It's like getting away from the hustle and bustle of the rest of the world. And we're in like, we're slowing down. We're going to this quiet, quaint town. So what is the point of Tranquility Base? Is it to go even further? What is your feeling of Tranquility Base? Like to me, it almost felt dreamlike in a way or felt disconnected too but what what were you getting from it it kind of felt exclusionary in some way and <laughs> i'm not, not all the town is there it's yeah only specific cast members and not even all the people that went there are supposed to be there like hayden <laughs> like <laughs> he's, he's supposed old. to leave yeah <laughs> yeah uh i think that it is kind of neat in that it, the button of the scene is that Maurice reveals to Ed that the reason, the ultimate purpose of this trip is that he wants to propose to Barbara Szymanski. So he wants to mm -hmm. do it in a special place, specifically at a place where he wants to grow his family. Yeah, And I do think it's kind of unique in that he doesn't want to live in the heart of Sicily. Like yeah. he's, his place is like a little bit away. Mm -hmm. but, even Probably even further than his... Because I always thought that Maurice lived a little further out from Sicily, and now Tranquility Base is even further away. Right, right, right. I mean, so far they have to take it like a truck. Mm -hmm. So it must be somewhat <laughs> far away. Uh, the thing that confused me, though, is that I thought it was implied that they've actually been here before. Yeah, so the thing that clued me in is that uh, around like halfway in the episode, Chris asked Ed if he's like, hey you know, it's still early. Let's go fishing. Like we always did. And I thought, what do you mean you always did? Like you mean in other parties or like whenever we come to Tranquility Base? Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe the, maybe, so Maurice mentions that Tranquility Base is set on like, what is it? It's like What's virgin like, forest and yeah, mountain streams and glaciers. Yeah. Some amount of, I wrote down the acreage, but, um, uh, 2,500. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, an impressive amount of land. 
But he does mention that there's like um, a gla- a natural glacier-fed lake. So maybe there's this lake that that Chris has gone fishing on before. That's what I would assume. But yeah, you bring up an interesting point. Have they been to Tranquility Base before? I thought it seemed seemed like in the first scene that they had just recently finished building it. Right. That's what gave me that impression. But also it's like, if you just finish this place, you're immediately starting to like host people there. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, like how long has this place been standing? I don't know. Um, anyway, I don't know how important that is, but, um, but yeah, any other, uh, overall thoughts of Tranquility Base? It's got a vol problem. Yeah. (laughs) Barbara Szymanski like draws her Beretta, like her Uh (laughs) pistol, which I feel like, I mean, I know this is Alaska, but I feel like you can't just like shoot your police firearm unless like anytime you spend a bullet, that's yeah, got to yeah. be a big deal. Oh yeah. Like a hundred percent. She's just like using it. to. Well, we could also assume cause there's other scenes in this episode and in other episodes where they talk about all the guns they have, Maurice and Barbara mm-hmm. Szymanski. So maybe that's a personal firearm. Maybe that's not the uh, oh, police issued. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it sets up a good, um, appetizer for what's to come because we immediately know that she is more forceful she's willing to exact who she is onto anyone that's going out of order or she perceives to be out of order because you, know, you didn't really have to kill that thing right it, it's um throughout this episode she seems to be a little more overbearing a, a little bit of a stickler and enforcer of the rules when everyone's here just to relax and uh Take a load off, you know, but we have sort of, um, we have certain rules we must follow according to Szymanski and she's very driven to those like by and to those rules, which to me definitely seems like a strong characteristic of Barbara Szymanski. Like that's how we know her. But I feel like the past few times that we've seen her, all of these episodes have sort of been... Anytime that we see her recently, in my memory, it feels like um, she's sort of breaking away from that mold of like servant to the law because we know that as her character and it feels like she's always challenged to uh, to put her, she's put in positions where she, what's the word? Rela- I don't want to just say like she relaxes, but she can like sort of overlook her duties to know like when it is proper to police. It's like, you know, what is... What is important for me to enforce, I guess. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, does that, yeah. like it seems like she's already kind of gotten over the um sort of hyper police mindset that she has. <laughs> well, I mean, they do make it a point to say that that's the thing, that's the quality that attracts Maurice to her mm-hmm. is that order must prevail mindset. So I can see why they're going back at it into this well and being like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna just make sure she is very black and white. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I was I'm complaining that it is very black and white. I feel like she's grown past it, but to the point of this uh, episode, or I guess what they're getting at with the relationship, you're right. It's like um, that's something that Maurice maybe he doesn't realize it, but that's what he really respects and loves in Szymanski. So to serve the episode. That's how she's portrayed and that's how she acts. And there's like a sort of a nice moment when Maurice realizes towards the end, he he says something like, uh, I realized like I had to let you be yourself or something like that Mm -hmm. to to that effect. That was nice. Okay. Well, let's continue down this plot here. 
Uh, we get one of maybe only a few scenes here in Sicily at the Brick. Michelle still works at the Brick. You know, I think we saw her there last episode. And they've definitely patched up things. Phil and Michelle are back together, kind of smooching each other. I think they might even share a kiss in this scene. I could be wrong. But they are planning a weekend trip, which obviously is to Tranquility Base. Uh, we learn in this scene that Michelle has difficulty making up her mind. For instance, um, there's a lot of things that she does. She's kind of wishy-washy. She doesn't know which direction to go. Uh, but when she waits on um, the patrons at the Brick, uh, she remarks how they quickly know exactly what they want to order. And she tells Phil, why can't I be like that? Just like at a moment's notice, know exactly what I want to eat. Right now, I feel like I have so much trouble just like making a decision. I have two thoughts on that. One is, I know we both seen it together, the film, When Harry Met Sally. Mm -hmm. And Sally is notorious for her menu ordering. Oh, yeah. You remember that? <laughs> they do it numerous times in the film. She will always do some sort of like chef ordering and be like, like substitution right. or something. Or right. It's like, <laughs> I want to substitute the chicken for the beef. I want the sauce on the side. And if there's like light vinegar, then just do like no vinegar. But if there's ranch, then I want it to be the specific type of ranch. If it don't even have ranch at all, then let's just skip it all together. Stuff like that. <laughs> and then Harry always gives her like kind of a look. And it's finally Sally just says like, you know, I know what I want. And yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's just it. And then Harry goes, okay. <laughs> and he like does a little famous Billy Crystal thing. Uh, the second thought that I had is that my father is like when he orders at a restaurant, he never, he, he is exactly like Michelle. He never knows what he wants to order. And this happens every single time. I used to get so embarrassed mm -hmm. uh, when I was like a teenager. <laughs> like my, my father, he'll, he'll always say, he'll, he'll tell us and be like, all right, I'm going to get like this thing. I'm going to get like the meatloaf, for example. And then when the waiter comes, he'll be like, wait, what is the most popular item ordered at this establishment? And they're like, ah, oh, I guess this thing is like, is it good? And they're like, I don't, you just asked me if this is the most popular one. And he's like, no, no, no I'm asking like, if you like, like it personally, when you eat at this restaurant, <laughs> like he always does that. He's never decisive at all. Uh, but yeah. What about you, Lee? Would you say that you are a very precise order? Mm, I'm definitely not like Sally in that I would like make a lot of substitutions. I usually try to just, just because I understand it's easier for the cooks and the wait staff to deliver what is on the menu. I guess that's like maybe a hang up that I have, but um, I definitely understand the anxiety of wanting everything on the menu. It all looks so good. How do I choose Oftentimes it's like, you know, you want to order one thing and then you find out that another person at your table, like one of your friends, your partner is going to order the same thing. It's like, oh, we, should, we shouldn't order the same thing. Like right, right, be, right, right. But if it's what you want, you'll probably be upset if you don't order it. You know, even if it's just the same as what everyone else is getting, you know, I've definitely been in that situation as well where it's like, oh, I always get um, spaghetti or something. Like, why am I, I, I need to switch it up. I get something new. And it was nice. I'm glad that I expanded my horizons, but I wanted the spaghetti. Like I should have got the, you know. <laughs> I don't think I learned that you could do substitution until I was like in college. <laughs> like I didn't really, I don't know. I was just always really polite and I, my family never did substitution. But I, I think I went to like one place with a friend and he was like, hey, instead of the uh, coleslaw, can you just give me like an extra slice of toast? I was like, you can do that? <laughs> like you can, that's allowed? <laughs> 
Yeah, sometimes substitutions are important. I guess I'm assuming you're talking about Raising Cane's, yes. which is a Louisiana <laughs> chain, but it's uh, nationwide now. But yeah, I always do substitute the coleslaw. I like coleslaw. I just don't really like not, the not Raising Cane's. Cane's. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Let's continue through this uh, through the story here. There's a couple little notes I might as well touch on. Um, Maurice and Ed are getting everything ready for their guests to arrive. I like that Maurice has lemon drops, like it just in little dishes around. What is a lemon drop? I thought a lemon drop was like that, uh, like hard sucker candy. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it's what it looks like he has on he his table. He has tables. that on a plate. He has it in dishes. Yeah, he has like he's like make sure all the lemon drop dishes uh, are refilled. I think. Oh, like it's still in its wrapper, and he just put them into like a. No, I think like, they're just like straight up little. He just like you know. Wait, you know those um lemon heads? Do you know those boxes? Yeah. I think he just opened those boxes and dumped them into a dish. Why would you do that? It's candy. It's delicious. I don't but know. why would you dump it into? You keep it in the bag. No, it's fancy. You put it what? in your put it in your dishes. You're serving candy. It's already not fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice likes to have it his way at Tranquility Base. Um, Barbara has a new dress. That she got at the Target Spring Sale, she says. Uh, we didn't mention, but yeah, we know that Maurice wants to propose to Barbara Szymanski, and he told Ed this. So Ed is like, throughout the episode, is going to continually bump into Maurice and be like, have you asked her yet? Have you popped the question? Um, he's about to do it in this scene, it seems like, because he's like, Barbara, before our guests get here, I just wanted to tell you something. And then Ed rushes in, and he's like, they're here, they're here. I can hear them outside. And... Um, we mentioned already everyone's arriving by this truck. Hayden Keys is driving like an army. What would you even call that? Like an army truck? It's like one of those things that like pulls up into Normandy. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. those, which kind of fits because that's uh, with Rabbi. It's Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, wait, is it Rabbi Shmuley or did I just? Shulman. Rabbi Shulman, Shulman. Yeah. <laughs> that's a 30 Rock character. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so they they all roll up, and it's I mean, there's a lot of people there. It's like Ruth Ann, Walt, Chris, Holling, Shelley, Phil, Michelle, Marilyn. Did I cover it all? That seems like it might be all. Very importantly, Maggie is not there. Right. And I was starting to freak out when we were watching it, Charles, because I was like, they might not show Maggie in this episode, and that would be a big disaster if she didn't show up. I'm glad she does. Yeah, I'm with you there, 100. I'm really glad that Maggie managed to make it in. I, I'm sorry. The, the reason I was I was delayed in my response. <laughs> I was just thinking on what they would do in 2024. I was thinking I was like, would they like CGI her in? Because oh, like because like they realized show. it was the last episode. They're like, oh shoot, Maggie's not in this episode. But it's the very last oh, episode. Like what do we do? Do we just like get digitally superimpose her into there? And I was thinking, I was like, do they even have the permission? Like the legal legality yeah. of doing that? Like, do they have to well, call her? There is a whole actor strike about this, or right. partly about this, like the usage of, I guess, AI to maybe recreate your image, or I don't know. That was another. That was a big thing. Like. um, we don't really need to get into it, but uh, do we talk about this all, Charles off pod? Like, I think part of the strike negotiations were dealing with like taking um, full body scans of actors or even extras mm-hmm. to use, like, yeah, in, yeah. Did you use it? Or, I think it's the term is like rights for perpetuality, yeah, something like that, but, where they can use it forever for like the paltry sum of like 20 bucks or something like that. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much they were going to charge, but just the idea that they could like scan your image and use it without right. you having to 
show up and be paid. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, and I, I don't want to sound like I predicted the future. I, many people <laughs> predicted this, but as soon as that, I want to say it was Coachella festival 2013 or something where like Michael Jackson popped oh. up. That's <laughs> when we were like, all right, <laughs> this is going to lead 10 years down the road. This is going to be something. This will be an issue. Yeah. But yeah. How would they do that today? If uh mag, if like, for instance, they shot the episode and it was just an episode that, uh, Janine Turner wasn't on the call sheet for. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe they would go AI. I was also thinking they could use like, just like outtakes from other episodes or something that they never used or deleted scene or something. It'd be tough, but it's just like a couple shots of Maggie included in that montage, you know, but mm-hmm. it's just like just Maggie. Like she, no one else is with her. Right. Um, I did want to touch on a couple other things that we get in this scene when everyone's arriving we learn that Holling is quite territorial when it comes to Shelly. Like someone accidentally bumps into Shelly and Holling gets, um, must acts kind of like a territorial dog guarding her. And they comment that Holling is in rut. Phil is like, he's in a rut. And, and Walt is like, no, in rut. He's been in the bush for so long that he's like taken on the sort of territorial, what would you call that? I can't remember. I didn't write it down. but Yeah, like, like in heat. Yeah, basically yeah. like he's taking on the like attitudes of animals out in nature, like in heat, which is kind of disappointing for a final episode for Hauling. I don't think he has any lines in this episode. Yeah, he, he, almost like, he almost didn't get paid. Yeah. You know, you have to like say a line to get <laughs> <Right>. paid. <laughs> uh, well, thankfully he's uh, like main cast. He's in that, he's in the opening title sequence. So they'll, they'll pay him for sure. <laughs> um, looking at my notes here. We mentioned that Maggie is a no-show and Chris uh, basically kind of brushes it off. He's like, oh, it's no biggie. It's whatever. And as we continue watching this episode, he seems to be sort of deflecting. You know, we can tell that he's hurt and he wishes Maggie was there. So he's, you know, acting out in a lot of strange ways, which I'm I'm sure we'll get to. Um, Apparently there's a lot of events planned for this weekend or whatever, this this stay at Tranquility Base. There's going to be like a nature walk a wildflower pressing, a geology lecture. Ruth Ann hosts a, a morel hunting, like sort of a class or something. We hear about all these events because Michelle is in her room with Phil. They're in the room together. And she's trying to decide what sort of activities they should do. Oh, well, we hear about it because of a brochure that they made. Ed yeah. passes it out to everybody at the, uh, I want to say it's like their lunch buffet. That's what they got going on in mm. the beginning when they come into the, uh, mm-hmm. come to the place. And I don't know, just like the thought of having to produce a brochure for this, it's like <laughs> insane. It's a, you know, spared no expense, as they say in Jurassic Park. It's like they, he really uh, went out of his way to... Make this a big... That's never a good example to use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, how did that film end? <laughs> yeah. Hope, thankfully, no one dies at Tranquility Base. Uh, I guess Michelle comes close. She, like, trips. She's the closest to dying. Oh, yeah. She's the closest <laughs> fatality right there. But, um, uh, yeah, if we if we get past that, yeah, they're in their room, and this is where we get their first fight between Phil and Michelle because Michelle is stuck. She's saying, like, oh, do I go on the nature hike or the flower pressing. And Phil was saying like, all right, well, let's just do the nature hike. Oh, well, okay, never mind. You changed your mind. Let's do the flower pressing. Okay, well, why don't you do the flower pressing and I'll go the nature hike. And then Michelle snaps and says like, you know what? I'll just go either like in the closet or even better, I'll just hide under the rug. (laughs) That way, you know, 
We can just do the things that you want. Yeah, and Ed is in this room. I forget why. He's probably like delivering some he's, blankets. He's, yeah, or... he gives them the complimentary uh, fruit basket fruit and basket uh, extra and blankets, blankets. <laughs> which is kind of weird because it's kind of, I don't know. Like, what? <laughs> that's not like their blankets to keep. It's just uh, extra, like yeah. they didn't ask gets, for it. In case it gets cold, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. Um, yeah, they, I mean, Tranquility Base just launched. Maybe they haven't figured out the heating exactly yet. Um, but yeah, um, Ed is in there and so he's overhearing this squabble and like it does get a little nasty like it's not terrible but yeah they have a little fight and ed is just has to act polite and as if he's like i'm not here like he doesn't hear it and he you know gets himself out of there as quick as possible um quickly going through here we also learn later um ruthann comes to maurice to consult with him she explains that barbara Samansky confiscated walt's uh whittling knife Walt is just like whittling away at some wood, you know, and Barbara Szymanski jumped on him and I guess confiscated it because it is a, um, sorry, checking my notes. It's a class C felony carrying a year in jail is what she says. But I mean, yeah, like, like the, is it like a type of knife or? Well, I'm, I've heard that it's illegal to have knives in, of a certain, if it's a less than a certain length, you know how like you can't carry knives on an airplane, stuff right. like that. So there is like. It is illegal to have knives that are shorter than a certain length. Everyone has pocket knives and yeah, like yeah. Leatherman's. So that's one what of those about like laws. Hunting knives. Those hunting, are huge. Yeah, but those are those are large enough to where it's um the reasoning is because like you can have concealed. Oh, weapons. okay. I that's get why it. if it's small enough, it is technically illegal. But it's one of those laws that like everyone has like a pocket knife. So it's not Well, I know if you got like a butterfly knife, that's a big no-no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are super illegal for some reason, like switchblades. There's definitely reasons for it, but you know, a whittling knife, I think no one's freaking out about, but this just goes to underline uh, Barbara Szymanski's dedication to the law and order. There's also a line in there where Ruth says, you know, he got this in Italy. He's a yeah. war hero. And it, it is kind of like we, we get this a lot in this episode, mm -hmm. war, right? or at least World War II. Do you have any ideas of a... Uh of how that might connect uh over analysis i think that like, like oh and this is like a boomer take too hey i'm sorry this is like <laughs> i i guess it's because like in world war ii it was one of those few wars where it was a very definitive good and a very definitive bad yeah so there was no decision to be made they were like all right we have to stop the axis of evil like we were definitely going there we are the good people we're going to put an end to this there's no gray area. There is no pontificating about the greater schemes of things. So in a way, I guess maybe that's what they're talking about, but I, I, I mm, kind of doubt it. World War II, I guess I see what you're saying, but what's the, how does that apply to the plot that there's no gray area to? Uh, I'm saying that like, they know what direction they want to go to, which goes into Michelle's thing. Okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, we can also, we can at least, we can't deny at least that, uh, World War II, war, there's a motif of this sort of language throughout this episode. I do think it's funny. We've kind of remarked as we were watching how much we see Hayden in this episode. Uh, he obviously, he drove that truck in uh, to Tranquility Base. We understand that something's wrong with it. It needs a little bit of repairs. We see him next lounging in a hammock, doing a crossword puzzle or something. And Ed is like, Oh, Maurice just wanted me to tell you, uh, you can head back now. And Hayden's like, yeah, I'm still thinking on it. Like, I, you know, we got to fix the 
whatever in the truck. Like it needs some repair, but I don't want to be too hasty. You know, now that you're out here, Ed, would you mind uh, soaking some spark plugs for me? And, you know, if you're just running around, grab me another beer or something. Hayden's just like reclining. Like you said, Charles, like some people aren't even supposed to be here. Like Hayden should have <laughs> left already, but he's definitely going to use this, um, the broken down truck as an excuse to stay here in Tranquility Base. Yeah, that's where Chris meets him outside. And he oh, tries yes. to talk to him and be like, <laughs> hey, we're two handsome men in our prime. <laughs> I'm in a relationship and you're married. But let's go <laughs> cheat on our significant others. That sounds like a wonderful plan with random people in the woods that we have never met. <laughs> he says like, wood nymphs, beware. There's like two handsome men just you know, lazing about here at Tranquility Base. He's obviously being reactionary to Maggie not showing up here. Um, he feels like he's a free agent. I feel like there is some, um, there's definitely something happening off screen in this episode that we haven't seen. Like mm -hmm. what is leading up to this? Because we do see Maggie at the end that we mentioned. Thankfully she does appear here. And in that scene, I'll definitely want to get into it when we get into it. But for now, we'll just say that um, it seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions. Like, why was she not there? Where else? She was going somewhere else. Like, I just wanted to point out to the, at the fact here, I don't like the way Chris is being reactionary, especially since we know that both he and Hayden are spoken for. Like, they have significant others. There's a, there seems to be some information that we're not getting that has already happened. And it um, we're just supposed to accept that like, are we supposed to think that they broke up? That's what kind of confused me. Because yeah. when I heard about it initially, I, I took it as like Maggie had chores. Yeah, like or she like, had something else to do. Yeah, right? she had another, her availability wasn't open. So that's why she couldn't make it to this weekend. I was like, that's perfectly reasonable. Why yeah. are you behaving this way? And I, <laughs> but I think the longer it, that it goes on, it's like, did they break up or something? And right, if they right. did... Why didn't they tell us? Like exactly. what happened? The and last episode was. They yeah. should have phrased it stronger in the beginning, <laughs> rather than say like, "And Maggie couldn't make it." I was like, "All right, we're all we're obviously going to be on Maggie's side," because <laughs> it seems like a very minor thing. Okay, so we're going to do a quick punch in here because uh, I'm sitting here with Charles and we discovered a deleted scene. There's a couple deleted scenes for this episode, but we discovered one that has the answer to why Maggie is a no-show here. It's a little more specific. Do you want me to describe it, Charles, or do you want to give us a, like, what, what exactly did we just watch? Yeah, so what's going on here is that we're having everyone prepare at the brick. They're ready to leave, and Hayden comes in and says that, all right, it's time to go, everyone. And then finally, Chris Steven barges in, and he says, hey, I'm sorry I'm late. Somebody had to be. And everyone says, well, where's Maggie? And Chris says... Maggie, she decided to leave for Mike Monroe. Yeah, apparently the reason she's gone is she got a letter from Mike Monroe, the bubble man from season four, and she's going to go up to Greenland to pay him a visit. Okay, I understand. There's many reasons why you would cut this scene out of the episode, but I would not have guessed that that would have been in the script for why... The, the reasons that we think, we talk about this more later in the podcast, so do stick around after this punch-in. We're going to talk about the scene towards the end when Maggie returns, and there's a lot to talk about there. But I like the idea better of keeping it open and not giving an answer rather than saying, 
Mike Monroe, like why bring Mike back? It felt like they really wanted him out of the show when they when they cut you know when they ditched him in season four. Yeah, I feel like they just wanted a ex boyfriend of some kind to come into the picture, and they couldn't use Joel. Mm, I wish they had. Like, uh, he's off screen, but ah, yeah, it's just such a it's kind of like an insult to injury. Where yeah, I mean you're right. If they had used Joel, mm-hmm. then it's like of course the audience would say, okay, yeah, well, it Maggie's, would also. It yeah. would also vilify Joel. True. Yep. Yeah. It would. Yeah. Well, I think we do actually talk a little bit more about the option of Joel mm-hmm. uh, later in this podcast because, uh, of course, without the deleted scene here that we just watched, it is very much open to interpretation. I think that is the the final edit of this episode, the final presentation of Tranquility Base. I think is uh, left a little more open, so we can talk about those possibilities. Uh, Uh, towards the end of the podcast when we get to that scene. So uh, signing off from this punch-in, Leon Charles, uh, we'll get back into the the meat of the episode. But no, like you said, it kind of makes it sound like Maggie was going to like leave Sicily or leave to somewhere for an extended period of time Mm -hmm. or something like that. But yeah, uh, Hayden turns him down and Chris goes off to the woods. Yep, and uh, the next scene is Maurice um, has a moment with Barbara Szymanski alone, and he basically tells her, like, I need you to be with me here. Like, you need to be my backup. We're working together. We have all these people to entertain. Tranquility Base is as much my, you know, gift to my friends as it is, like, you are a co-host. You're a host with me. You know, you have to. we have to host these friends. And uh, he asks her about the whittling knife that she confiscated and um, she kind of fires back at him basically saying to Maurice, so you're, you're asking me to look the other way, which definitely made me think back to that episode where Maurice is uh, hiding Cal Ingram from Barbara. She's trying to arrest or apprehend uh, the mad violinist and Maurice has to look Barbara straight in the eyes and... He knows that she knows that he's lying to her, but she accepts it. You know, she's like, you're telling me to look the other way. If, if that's how, the, how you want to play this, then that's how we're going to play this. And now we're reminded of that again, where this is, seems like a much, a much lesser infraction, but it's all the same to Szymanski. You know, this is definitely part of her, part of herself that she doesn't want to let go of. So the next scene we'll talk about is... Ed and Phil. Ed is, uh, you know, I think he's like bringing Phil some iced tea or something, but he also is really, he's asking some advice from Phil. Ed is thinking of himself as, as the shaman version of himself. And he mentions how he always heard from Leonard that involving yourself in others like personal drama can be seen as a little rude. Um, it, can, it can be offensive to some so Ed himself doesn't really know how far he's supposed to quote unquote intrude into other people's problems. But, you know, he is also a, a shaman, a healer. So it's like, that's part of his, part of his job is to help others. So he's basically kind of asking Phil what he would do in his situation. And Phil says, basically, you know, if it's coming from a good place, I think people will understand and it, it will mean a lot to them. So, Ed is basically like, okay, well, the problem that I noticed was between you and Michelle. Like, you know, just, I, I've got to be upfront with you about it. Um, and he recommends basically, well, he explains to Phil, like, 
The problem with Michelle is obviously she can't make up her mind. Phil is explaining that to Ed as well. And Ed tells Phil, well, the only thing that's going to make it better is if she can make her own choices for herself. I tried to write down the quote here, but basically Ed says some things like, enabling also hurts the enabler. Um, Phil is an enabler. Like he's trying to make the decisions for Michelle, but enabling hurts the enabler as well. He tells Phil, you're thinking for her and you get mad at her because you're thinking for her. Then you feel used and that makes you feel sorry for yourself. So it's all this vicious cycle. Even though Michelle seems like she needs help from the outside, if Phil tries to guide her, it's only going to keep spinning and end up not only preventing Michelle from progressing through this, but it's also going to hurt Phil himself. Yeah, Phil is the training wheels for Michelle, in mm, which yeah. she's kind of relying on his guidance and trying to see how things will pan out. And Ed has the astute observations and like, you can't do that. And in a way, like, <laughs> I think he's, he is pretty much right. Like, I, I find very little mm-hmm. counter yeah. against Ed's argument, which is very wise of him to be able to pull this out. Yeah. Or, yeah. At the end of season six, you know, he can dole out that kind of advice. You know, on like a personal note, I do think that like if you ask people for advice, you can ask 10 different people and you're going to get 10 different answers. So at that point, it's like, well, which one is the right answer for you to do? So it ultimately really comes down to like it. It is in some ways useful to ask people on advice of this nature. But in in the other way, all you're really doing is hampering yourself. So mm-hmm. you need to find the way out with your own instincts that's not to say that you shouldn't rely on other people for help, uh, especially if you're in a situation in which you're vulnerable or you're feeling weak. Of course not. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I think that like on monumental decisions, I, mm. I think it's almost better to like talk it out with close friends. But ultimately, you get the decision through your own choices. Yeah, it's your decision that you have to make. So you're going to have to, in the end, you're going to have to be happy with the choice that you made. Mm-hmm. It is important that, I mean, I think a lot of times it can be important, like you're saying, to get advice from friends and people you trust. But you're right. It's like the message of what Ed is saying here is like, Michelle needs to be happy with the choices she makes. I had heard somewhere and like, I'm paraphrasing it and this is only like tangentially related, but I had heard a very pretty pearl of wisdom where I was saying like, whenever you accomplish something, you don't have to say, or rather you shouldn't say, oh, I did it because of you. Everything that you do is from your own merit, it's from your own hard work. Mm-hmm. And conversely, when you fail, you cannot say it was because of you. Right. <laughs> your failure and your successes come from within yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm, I feel good for Michelle in the end of this episode. It's a, it's, it's not necessarily too revelatory or um, surprising. Like we kind of see where it's heading and it gets there. But one thought I was thinking of is like, no, I mean, this is a dumb thought. I was just like, what is happening to Michelle? I mean, it's just purely like a plot device, right? I mean, it's yes, but (laughs) extrapolating it into the very series finale, I do think that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. The, The crossroads idea, the one where you're like, where do I want my future to take me? Right. I think that's a very pleasant way to end a series finale or a season finale yeah. for a character, especially since she's been having this for 
the past, I don't know, how many episodes has it been where she's been having this sort of crisis within herself? Like eight, right. nine? Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah, it feels like it in that regard. So she's kind of like an audience stand-in for the show in some way. Mm-hmm. That's like, where should we head to now? Don't know if I want to go behind or go in front. Yeah, that's that is a great uh, question for the audience to ask, for the show itself to ask, like, where do we go from here? I think it works better as a season finale than a series finale because the series finale is, it, it demands finality, not not like which direction should we go, but knowing like where is the end. Oh, I see what you mean. But again, they didn't know that this episode would be the final episode, but it is a great, I do like it as a, as a closing for like a, for a season. Um, okay. Let's keep moving here. Michelle uh, is alone in nature and she, I don't think she notices it, but we see someone parachuting and then this person lands and gets kind of like trapped in a tree just above her. Yeah. It's Rabbi Shulman. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say that shot is like a hard cut. Uh-huh. And I thought, I thought it was just like a random imagery just to have that imagery. Oh, like that yeah. art house type of film. The Seeing the parachuter in the sky. Yeah. And I was like... I didn't know that we you you were gonna go this uh, avant garde. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it turned out it was real. It was like actual footage of Rabbi. So I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. So yeah, you're, yeah, Rabbi Shulman comes down. He's in a suit, lands totally in front of her on the trees, and he gets himself out and introduces himself to her. And at, at first, I didn't realize that that was the same character. Yeah, as that we from, we um, love that fish we, story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else he was in. Um. Uh, 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 Yiddish for Uncle... Was he in Kaddish for Uncle Maybe? Was he in that? I think maybe so. Uh, Because he says he materializes in Joel's room. There's the one that was like a Christmas carol. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. That's the one you're thinking of. I can't remember the title of it, but there's like a Christmas carol-esque episode. We had Mm -hmm. a moose chick on for that episode. Right. Um, Well, I like him. Yeah. I I really like him. I like how he, he himself is like... We know Rabbi Shulman to sort of, I don't want to say give answers, but he oftentimes will appear to Joel. And by the end of the episode, he, there's this sort of a bigger revelation, something that Joel is struggling with, and the rabbi helps him see the solution. But I like how in this episode, maybe it's true for the other episodes too, but specifically here, it seems like the rabbi himself is unsure. Like, why am why am I here? I don't even know like why I'm here. I just like, one moment I was... Doing, uh, he says one moment he was, you know, talking about the meaning of God's words to Moses at the burning bush, which we'll later see in this episode. And then the next moment he's like parachuting, you know? So I like that as much of a um, sort of a quandary of the soul that Michelle is having, she's like trying to figure out what she needs to do. Uh, Rabbi is going to be there to help her, but he he himself is also has this big question. He's like, "What am I doing here?" I, like, because yeah. Joel, Joel's not here. He says, "Where's Joel?" He's like, "I normally show up whenever Joel has a problem." I do think it's kind of nice that they shout out Joel's name at the I very last episode. Yeah, for uh, for a split second, it gave me hope. <laughs> that gave Joel me hope that Joel's up? coming back. I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be amazing." True. That's true. That is a little mean that they that they they tease you with that, but it is. I, I do like that they mention him. Uh, he says, I must be here to find Joel. Where is he? And Michelle says, like, uh, he's, you know, he went back to New York. And so he asks, why am I here then? Uh, Michelle is not Jewish. She's Catholic. She's Polish, she mentions. And um, yeah, I wrote down in my notes, Rabbi himself seems confused. And 
I forget how the scene ends, but I think Michelle's like, maybe we should head back to Tranquility Base, to the lodge. And the rabbi says something like, hmm, decisions, decisions. And then like when Michelle turns to him, he's gone. Like he's not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, I was like, why? Yeah, I don't know. Why does he disappear? I guess it doesn't really matter. He appears again later, but I mean, I guess since it's just on my mind, why why does he disappear there? Like, because there, I know why, because she ends up being in scenes with other characters. Mm-hmm. So she's not ready to fully go find the burning bush later. You know, that's a whole different scene. But it just seems weird that Rabbi's there and then disappears. I guess he does that in the um, in the sort of Christmas Carol episode, right? He appears yeah. to Joel and then he disappears and he comes back. I think your first explanation is the most likely one. Mm-hmm. The writers were like, well, what's he going to do whenever Michelle goes with the other characters? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, let's just have him just disappear right here at right. the end of Act 1. He'll come back. He'll zoop back in. He's just like a figment of her imagination. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But is he a figment of her imagination? I guess that's the only answer. I mean, there's a magical realism idea that he's he's really there, but he's also not there. Yeah. I think that's the most healthy way to look at it. <laughs> Rather than to believe that she has a mental illness. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, speaking of that, it's like uh, earlier when Ed is talking with Phil, Phil is like, you know, what could it be like an Oliver Saxian neurological syndrome or something? I like the reference to Oliver Sacks. Um, okay. There are multiple scenes where people walk past Shelley and Hollings, uh, the door to their room. And I think we might hear some grunting. We certainly hear some like bed spring squeaking. Uh, I think they're just supposed to be banging this whole time, nonstop. <laughs> like Ed will drop off food to their door. Yeah, and Hauling opens it and just grabs like the chicken, I think the chicken, the whole chicken. Yeah, like the Cornish hen. He just grabs that and just shuts the door. Yeah, we don't see him. We get a moment where Marilyn is looking for another pillow. I, I guess like rather than ask for another pillow, she just goes to sort of a dresser in the hallway and starts to pick out another pillow. It seems like Szymanski is going to come in and lay down the law and Maurice swoops in and says, oh, you know, if, if Marilyn needs another pillar, let her have one. You know, like, you know, let, we got to accommodate our guests. And Szymanski explains, like, that's exactly what I was doing. Like, you don't need to hover over me. I was just trying to help her. However, she does. The end of the scene is like, you know, I was going to do that, even though I have my own reservations because if everyone asks for a new pillow and we let everyone get a new pillow, then everyone's going to be running around doing whatever they want here. Like there's going to be no order. So it's hard to say. It seems like Szymanski was trying to do the right thing by Maurice, but she's also still um, beholden to her own ideals. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to do it to make Maurice happy, but I know that it's wrong to let Marilyn take another pillow. Okay. This is... Uh, just more exacerbated in the next scene where everyone's playing charades and Michelle is, I don't know what you call it, but she's the person like doing the miming, like doing the charades. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to get them to guess bridges of Madison County. And it's getting really close. They're starting to fit it together. And right before she kind of gets the final clues in, she lets out a sort of buh, like she says, kind of lets out this B syllable. And Szymanski notices that. Like we get a shot of Szymanski seeing that, noticing that Michelle sort of made a sound, which is against the rules, I believe, of charades. Like you can't make any, can't say any words. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't make any sounds. I forget. I think it's maybe Hayden. Someone someone guesses it correctly, but Szymanski quickly is like, nah, that's against the rules. She clearly said a sound, you know? And no one really cares that much. Everyone leaves <laughs> yeah. to go, uh, I, I think... Maurice had told Ed to put out 
some coffee pastries and, and pastries, coffee, yeah. which is like, I never understand that. Like, yeah. that's a common thing to set out after like dinner and stuff is like right. coffee. But like, how? <laughs> some if people, I drink coffee at like at six, I'm screwed. Some people tell me it's like, oh, coffee doesn't, I can't drink coffee to stay up. Coffee makes me go to sleep. And I'm like, that is a lie. That's like biologically a lie. Are you not a human being? Do <laughs> your chemicals react differently to different like responses? I can definitely understand the sort of cozy warmth of a cup of coffee. If it's decaf, yeah. Yeah, if it's decaf for sure. And that's probably what he's serving, I would assume, but maybe not. But yeah, there's definitely some chemical process that happens. I can feel it coursing through my blood. <laughs> yeah. when, I've, when I've had enough coffee, it's like I cannot sleep. Um, but I don't know. I mean, people know what I, I'm not... Who am I, I to say that they are wrong if there's like, I drink a cup of coffee and it puts me to sleep, but there are definitely scientific studies that show that caffeine keeps you awake. It's a stimulant. Right. But I, I will <laughs> say, I will say <laughs> it is a pretty great feeling yes. to have coffee at six o'clock after dinner. That yeah, is really it's cozy, fantastic. It's just exactly what you need after dinner. Yeah. That's a great feeling. But <laughs> anyway, they don't care about Barbara Szymanski and, and she continues to press the issue which maurice tries to fight her back on and eventually she gets into a physical altercation and punches maurice yeah she shoves him and then she punches him i forget what she says i should have wrote it down but she's basically i think she basically says like you can't tell me what to do like stop telling me how to act and how to how to feel about this like i know that michelle cheated whether or not she meant to cheat that's not supposed to be allowed in charades it's hard to say if the if the team guessed um, they were able to guess Bridges of Madison County because of that buh sound, but it is against the rules. Whether or not that happened, it's not. It's it's a foul. I don't know. It's a foul. I was gonna say what's it? Foul play? What's the word? I think it's like foul. I think that's what she yeah. says. Does she not? But anyway, um, yeah, things are not going great with Maurice and Samansky. She does punch him straight in the face. The next scene is. Uh, this is one thing that you remarked at, Charles. You thought this was a pretty great idea. Chris is ready to party and he wants to go night fishing, you know, take the bottle of cognac out there, uh, have a drink while they're fishing at night. He's trying to get Ed to join him. Uh, as you mentioned before, it's like maybe they've done this before, but Ed has a lot of stuff on his plate. He's like, I'm just going to go to bed early because we need to get up early for breakfast. Maurice has me doing this and that. Please let me sleep, Chris. Yeah, I do think that that's a really fun idea, though. Like, yeah. think about it. It's like, I think it's like around like 11, maybe <laughs> like 11 yeah. o'clock. Yeah, you go out there, uh, have a great time on the boat, drinking a sixer, just, <laughs> you know, out there in nature with your with your bud. Oh, yeah, it's like a fantastic way to spend a night. But no, I get it. Ed's got, uh, he's got to cook those uh, kolaches. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, he's got to cook that in the morning. So in response, Chris says, all right, well, I'm going to hit up my buddy Hayden. <laughs> and Hayden will surely join me. But he says there's too many mosquitoes. He's going to lay off. And Chris says, well, he's probably got like insect repellent. Let me go dig around the drawers. And that's where he stumbles upon the, the uh, what is it called? I know it's you had Yeah, it's a, I wrote it down. This is a, it's a bottle of champagne that Maurice introduces in like the first scene. He calls it, Krug Clos du Menil, 1983. And I, we actually looked at the price of this. Today, this bottle will cost as much as $2,400 for this champagne. It's, it's a champagne that Maurice has been saving for a special occasion. Oh, he says, uh, I had to squeeze a few peaches to get this. So <laughs> it's an important bottle to him. It's what he wants to, I guess, uh, pop once um, he proposes to 
Barbara Szymanski. Right. And Chris proceeds to cut it open with like a samurai sword. Yeah. Chris is ready to bust open the champagne. He like holds it or he gives he it. He has Hayden hold it. Yeah. He gets Hayden to hold it and he like gets Hayden to hold it at a particular angle. And he's sort of like, it's like Chris is studying the angle of the neck of this bottle. And then he turns around and grabs, I think it's like a saber off the wall. Mm. There's a number of swords on the wall and he takes one of them. And have you ever sabered champagne before? No, I didn't even know that was a thing. It's it's definitely a thing and it's not as hard as it looks. Really? It's, um, thought he was Chris insane does doing it that. improperly, though apparently it works. We saw it happen okay. on screen. But he, the proper way to do it is kind of what Chris is doing when he's like, checking the angle of the gla- of the ridge of the neck. Mm-hmm. There is sort of a seam that you can find running vertically along the neck of a champagne bottle. And you want to like glide the sword along the seam. And there is like a bit of a lip at the, like the, bo- the lip of the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. The bottleneck. You glide the sword and just put a forward thrusting motion. And it's uh, really just like the force of the, like the blade doesn't have to be really sharp. We've done it before with a, a butter knife. Um, but the, a longer sword helps you a little bit with more of that. I guess you would call that torque or yeah. lever action. But yeah, just hitting something against that um, lip, that ridge, that lip of the bottle head, um, bottleneck, it'll just pop off. Like the cork and a little bit of the glass will separate oh. just because of the pressure. It, it, it's like the pressure is working for you. So you don't really have to... What Chris does is he like... Comes That's down like a even, guillotine and he like chops the head off. Yeah, of the, the process you're describing is like that can be done by like, like a, a fork or like yeah, a very probably good like a metal <laughs> toothpick or something like that. So <laughs> not even like a saber at all. That one is like, okay, never mind. When, when you told me it was like, yeah, it's like a traditional thing. They just chop it off with the saw. I was like, no way. <laughs> just decapitate no. it with the wakazashi. It's like, no. Um yeah, Chris goes ham on that bottle of champagne. Surprised that there's no um, no one comes out except for Barbara Szymanski. No, I mean, well, I was gonna say, surprise he doesn't have to pay for that later. Like, oh, no yeah, one gets yeah, mad. That's true. No, I thought Maurice was gonna get really upset, but uh, thankfully nothing bad happens. Um, but um, yeah, Barbara Szymanski like comes out, she's like, keep it down. Chris becomes like a violent drunk. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> You know, well, everyone's like, it's, everyone's trying to go to sleep, you know, keep it down. And Chris is like, well, I'm still up and someone has to have a little fun around here. Like he, <laughs> Deranged like, line reading. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciated it. But yeah, it's like he's becoming a, a, a very violent and drunk. The next scene is uh, the next morning and Chris is, of course, very hungover. Uh, everyone's having a good time at the breakfast they like compliment ed on his cooking skills uh hauling and hauling and shelly are still shacked up in the room yeah they're not out yet (laughs) yeah and i think for my recollection this is kind of where they split off into their activities yeah michelle is asking phil if he wants to go to the morel hunt and phil says you know it's your decision it's up to you whether or not you want to go I don't think Phil, no, Phil doesn't end up going, but no. she will. So she does go to the Morel um, mushroom hunt. Uh, before we get there, there is a little moment. Let's see. Ed has brought breakfast out to Maurice, and we see Maurice from behind. He's just sort of like staring out into the distance. He's not responding to Ed, but Ed delivers the breakfast, and 
I guess he asks Maurice if he's popped the question yet, something like that. He keeps asking that throughout the episode. And Maurice turns around. Obviously, he has a black eye from where he was punched by Barbara Szymanski. And he says that mission aborted. It's not, it's not going to happen anymore. There is a moment that we skipped over where Barbara Szymanski tells Maurice, I wear a badge. That's me. If that doesn't cut the mustard, then sayonara which basically insinuates, as we see later, like she's going to leave Tranquility Base early. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is the scene where Maurice explains to Ed, he says, you know why I really bought this place? Essentially, he says he wanted a family compound. He relates it to uh, JFK, I think, Hyannis Port, which I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it sounds like like a family compound that Maurice is imagining where you know, the children are raised and the family gathers and also business is conducted, like just sort of a a headquarters of sorts Mm -hmm. for Maurice, uh, not only for his business, but for the family venture. And I think I mentioned before, it's like um, Maurice, it might be in this scene where he says like he had already accomplished all of his other dreams, but he never got to, you know, accomplish the dream of a family that he had. Right, right. So that's a really great revelation. I think that's like a cool low moment for his character where we're finally learning more about his motives. And yeah, pick more into that once we get into it. But continuing forward, it is the morale hunt, which Ruthann is actually leading. And she's telling them, saying like, hey, you're not going to see them until you just realize that they're there. And once you realize it, then you can always spot it, which is, of course, subtext for like whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's like that subject. It's like it's it's like that scene in Sideways where uh-huh. it's Paul Giamatti and he's like, "Hang on, this wine <laughs> takes a special flavor. You got to appreciate it. it. Doesn't come to everybody." It's like, oh, "I wonder who this is." He's talking about oh, himself, wonder, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, "I wonder who he's describing. I wonder what he's talking about." It's like trying to talk about himself by talking about wine. Yeah, no, yeah, it is a pretty blanket metaphor here, but it does connect to pretty quickly to Chris later. Ruthann says, at first you can't see them anyplace, but once you get in the zone, they're everywhere. She's referring to the mushrooms, of course, but um, but Chris is uh will later compare that to Maggie. Like he didn't realize all along he'd been living in the same town as Maggie, and he didn't realize that he was truly in love with her until mm-hmm. he realized it. Right. This is where Michelle goes off and she hears that clicker which I don't think we talked about it yet, but Rabbi Shulman has his clicker that he got from World War II. Right. Yeah. It's one of the things he had when he's parachuting, I guess. Right, one of those neat little things right there, a little, uh, a little memento. And that's what Michelle hears, and that clues her in to right there, which I think is actually kind of neat because that demonstrates an awareness from this higher being that sent him that said, like, you're going to need a way to get her attention. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm going to give you this tool. And so she calls out and bam, he appears. Yeah, she, she I think, picks up two stones and knocks them together as well. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, Rabbi Shulman. But that's important that you said that the Rabbi was sent here with a tool to get her attention. And it's, it's important that Michelle is in her own quandary and she has her own problem. But it's the two of them together, the Rabbi and Michelle, they're going to come to the conclusion jointly. And it's not just for Michelle's benefit, as we'll learn, uh, Rabbi is able to take his own meaning from it as well and to help him progress forward. 
couple things we get in this scene. They're trying to find their way back because Michelle has gotten lost uh, while mushroom hunting. Rabbi has a map, but when he pulls it out, it's basically a map of like Normandy beach, like a D-Day map or something. You know, mm-hmm. like he was, cause apparently he, he was a parachuter, I guess a D-Day. Does that sound right? Or like Normandy or Battle of Normandy. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I, I want to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm not like too sure a, if he referenced the exact battle. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, he does have the neat little story. Right. And um, he has a pretty interesting uh, quote here. It's an old Yiddish phrase, old Yiddish proverb. He says, when you don't know where you're going, every road will take you there. That's like a nice sort of inspirational quote. Um, it's like, you know, you may feel lost, but whichever direction you choose, it will get you to the end. But also, I'm trying to think of ways to interpret this, but one thing I thought when I heard this was uh, the fact that if you don't know where you're going, you're kind of powerless in finding your destination. Like every road is going to take you into the unknown if you have no idea where you're going, mm-hmm. which could be good or bad, I guess. I don't know how how you interpret that. Uh, I think we're led to believe that it's good. Like right. any decision yes. for it is good. I think that Rabbi Shulman's big spiel, is that coming up in the next scene where he, he tells the story? Uh What's the story? The story of his friend in the um in the play. I don't want to get there just yet because he does mention a little bit about himself. Oh, I'll do, I'll do yeah. that. We'll do that first, and then we'll talk about because he does have a friend from from World War II that right, right, right. Michelle reminds him of. But yeah, before that, he, you're right. There is a little thing where he says that I used to. What was it? Was it to uh, was it to give advice or was it reading? Yeah. So he mentions how. He kind of alludes to, I think it's in Fish Story, because he tells this struggle that he's going through in his own career, rabbi is. In Fish Story, he's like, they want a, they want a new rabbi in mm-hmm. the synagogue. It's a woman, and it's a little oh, more progressive. Like, I right, represent right, right. the old school of thought. Uh-huh. Um, he brings that up, and he also says how he's taken a new direction in his, I'm calling it career, but in his... Um, Maybe in his, his spirituality, you know, he's being less of a rabbi leading his congregation and he's going deeper into study. Yeah, he wants to kind of kick back, just chill with meditation and thought. But whenever he sits down, his sciatica starts to act up. Mm-hmm. So the only way to get around that is if he lies down and reads. But he finds that he can't do anything when he's can't lying focus, down. yeah. Yeah, so he he's kind of letting on that he feels like he's going in a wrong direction himself or that maybe God is, I don't know if it's like God is trying to tell him he's going the wrong way or he feels like maybe he's being cast aside. He feels, he definitely probably feels that from his congregation if we're to believe that he feels like he's been uh, demoted in that this other rabbi is uh, is kind of taking control of uh, of the synagogue, maybe. So he's got his own little issues there that I think are important to because they'll come up again later. And the rabbi is basically like, you know, here we are, a dysfunctional rabbi and a paralyzed Catholic wandering into the wilderness all alone. But of course they come upon a burning bush. And Michelle is like, that's on fire. Like, shouldn't we put it out? And the rabbi's like, no, 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 don't do anything. Like this is clearly... The burning bush. Go ahead, sorry. Right, yeah, yeah. The burning bush from the... <laughs> the story that he was, I guess when he was whisked away to the parachute, he says he was uh, maybe speaking on that to a congregation or something. I forget what he says. He's like, I was just studying or talking about the burning bush. Right. I mean, it's a famous story from the Bible. 
where you seek advice from God. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really cool that the Lord doesn't speak to him here. Because yeah. if he did, that would ruin the whole thing. Because that's somebody trying to direct you on your life in a very uh-huh. explicit manner. And in this way, not even the rabbi himself, who is lost, is able to find like that direct order of where to go. Uh, mm-hmm. and in fact, it's more so that the Lord himself is saying, I know you're struggling. I see it. I acknowledge it. And I want you to know that I'm here for you, but I'm not going to give you the answer. Yeah. the pres- His presence is there. Like the presence of God is there, but he won't speak. Like uh, the rabbi keeps saying, come on, we're listening, we're listening. But the bush begins to like, the fire begins to peter out and mm-hmm. like it stops burning at some point. And there was no voice of God. There was no message. But yeah, it fits in with our theme, our idea here that we can't just have the answer spoken to us. We'll have to make the decisions on our own. Let's see. Maurice is walking out with Barbara. She's about to get picked up. They're talking about separating their shared belongings, like the different guns that they own and stuff. So it seems like they're they're doing like they're breaking up relationship wise. But then all of a sudden, I forget who it is. It might be the whole mushroom hunting class, but everyone's like, we lost Michelle. Where is she? And Barbara snaps into position, begins a search party, starts giving out orders like, you know, we do this, we do this 10 meters apart. We like comb the perimeter, whatever you call it. Uh, so she's back in action. But it's it's cool that in this moment, Someone is barking out orders, but it's the right time for someone to bark yeah. out orders mm-hmm. because it's chaotic and nobody knows how to lead a search party. And instead, it's not so that like the knowledge she had was like revelatory or she had like some newfound technology that could find her. It's simply the fact that like th- it looks like someone is speaking with confidence and that they've done this before. And so logically, she could find like this is our best way of doing it. I just happen to know it. Just listen to me and I'm going to direct you. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it is actually like, it's great that someone is directing you. And am I misremembering, but do we get a shot of Maurice like noticing this? And kind no, no, of, no, we do. Like he kind we of do. likes it maybe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the attraction is still there. Hopefully they'll build on that, you know, throughout this episode. Uh, we next see Michelle and the rabbi again. They're still lost. They're stumbling around and Michelle says something in Polish. I didn't see any subtitles. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever hear, I don't think we ever understand exactly what she says, but it reminds the rabbi of his old buddy Piltz, who was also Polish, someone from uh, World War II that he served with. And he says he was the same as you, Michelle, like he could never make up his mind. He always had a million questions to ask me, like philosophical, all these different ideas. I never seemed to have enough time for him, like anyone, not just the rabbi, not just Rabbi Shulman himself, but all the other Uh, men in the unit. He was always asking questions and could never make up his own mind. And the story that the rabbi tells, this is what, why don't you take it, Charles? Because I I think you remembered this scene. Yeah. So the rabbi tells a story of how they were in one of the planes that they were going to jump from with their parachute. And when it came time for Pilts to make the jump, he just froze at the doorway. And it wasn't that he was afraid of heights or that he was afraid of death or anything like that. It was just that he didn't know if he wanted to make the decision to leave the plane or to stay on the plane. And so he let everyone else jump in front of him. Uh, And then when it finally got to the rabbi, he paused and said, like, hang on, like, do you do you think that I should? And he never really gets to finish. He's like, I have a question for you. Right. 
because Rabbi, he knows where he wants to go. Rabbi's like, you may have a question, but I got to jump. Like, yeah. I got to get going. So he jumps out the plane, and by the time he lands on the ground floor, the plane is shot down, and he never hears from Pilts again. So obviously from this story, we understand that, you know, sometimes you have to make a decision. I think Rabbi says later, you have to jump sometimes. Like, you can't sit around in indecision. Especially for Pilts, it was it meant his his demise. Like, he died from... Uh, he couldn't jump out of the plane and it was shot down. But it's not just that because Rabbi also can apply this story to himself where he thinks if he had given more time to Pilts and listened to the questions, you know, maybe Pilts would have known what to do if Rabbi was able to listen and give advice maybe. I don't know. But this inspires in the Rabbi the idea He says, maybe I shouldn't be in study. You know, I should be with my congregation, my people. Maybe that's my purpose is to be there to listen to their questions. And that's when the rabbi finally tells Michelle to just jump. The same advice that he would have given to Pilts. And he disappears. (laughs) Off into his own land. Back into Michelle's brain, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, No, no, no. But yeah, that's when Michelle has to make the decision of like, uh, where do I go? And she tries to turn around one last time and say like, wait, 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 hang on. Like right or left, right or left. And then he's already left. So then she goes right and she trips down the hill and injures herself. <laughs> Passes out, is knocked out. Thankfully, Holling is in rut so he can somehow detect Michelle's yeah. sin. The rules aren't explained very well <laughs> on his abilities. <laughs> he doesn't say anything, but he acts like a, a bloodhound or something and is picking up her scent and Ed is like, he's picking up the scent. Follow him. Follow Holling. And yeah, very easily, like literally it goes from one scene to the next. He, he found Michelle. So they find Michelle. Phil is later attending to her in their room. And she thanks him. She says, thank you for letting me go. Because Phil is like, I should have never let you go. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I should have been there with you. Why did I, you know, why did I do that? But the truth is, um, it was because Phil let her make her own decision that she was able to have this revelation. He says, you're probably like starving. Like, what? don't you want to eat something? And she says like, yeah, man, I could go for like a turkey club with like, she just lists off yeah, like, like no, tomatoes, tomatoes, no tomatoes, double cheese, you know. Whole grain wheat. And then she just like laughs and smiles to herself because she realizes she reached that certainty that the patrons of the brick have. You know, when she asks them, what would you like to order? And they rattle off their order with all the uh, specifics she's able to reach that sort of certainty for herself. And yeah, it's a pretty simple conclusion. Like we see it where it's heading. Uh, I think the most revelatory and exciting part is with Rabbi Shulman. The ending here is a nice sort of cherry on top, but I do really like the way I I wrote it down. Uh, Terry Polo, the actor, just like her smile and laugh at the end there. She's very charismatic. It's almost infectious and it's good to see that character sort of reaching that certainty and um, affirmation of herself. It's great. Right. The next scene after that, we see Hayden is finally working on the truck. Uh, He's like turning some sort of ratchet or something, but then he also like uh, takes his hand out of frame and picks it back up and he's got a glass of champagne. So (laughs) while he is closer to leaving Tranquility Base, he's still enjoying the... uh, luxuries and the, you know, just the relaxation here with his glass of champagne. 
we get a moment where Maurice apologizes to Barbara, you know, for trying to turn her into something that she's not. And that leads to Maurice confiding in Barbara and say, like, you know, uh, the thing that I've been trying to change on you, I really shouldn't have because that's what I was attracted to in the first place. Mm -hmm. When I saw you today and when I first met you, it was always that commanding presence. That's why I love you. And that's why I want to ask if you'll marry me. And Barbara, obviously, because this is a television show and we're in for a good time. <laughs> she says yes. And they kiss and no one else really knows. Yeah, she two. says we got to keep it like no big flashy wedding. We do it by the books. And I'm sure the rest of the time will know. But for this episode, I don't think anyone else understands that, that it happens. Like that's kind mm -hmm. of like the end of this little moment for them. Um, I did think for a second that she might say no. And I like, think and too. I think it was, would have still been fine. You know, it's like, sorry, Maurice, like I can't do it, but they would still be happy with each other. Maybe they wouldn't, maybe they would break up, but it would still be, they would still be very, you know, they'd be friends, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the next scene, this is the a big question mark for me when we were watching it with Chris and Ed Chris is sad and he admits to himself that he was basically just reactionary. He feels like he was uh, lashing out maybe because he misses Maggie and he wished he had her. And, and he says, I let her walk out that door. That's what he says. Still don't know what exactly happened. Did they break up? Just as he's in this lowest moment, Maggie arrives. I should have wrote it down. I wrote down a few things. But some things she says is like she just couldn't get on that plane, something like that. So she was going to either fly her own plane somewhere else or she was going to take a plane trip somewhere else. She says she couldn't get on that plane. And she also says it's not specific, but specific enough. She says to Chris, what I'm trying to say is I'd rather be with you. Rather be with you than, does she mean I'd rather be with you, Chris, than somewhere else? Or does she mean I'd rather be with you, Chris, than him? Was she going to, I paused the episode while we were watching it, Charles, at this point, And I was like, did they break up? Are we supposed to? No, like, it's like, I, that I told never you, happened. you rewinded it like twice. And I was like, you're not going to find the answer. It's not there. It's not in the script. You're going to have to use your imagination. <laughs> to use that gestalt, like I'm going to fill it out. Oh, in my yeah. Own head. Like, yeah, that, I think that's what it is. It's like the viewers have to kind of uh, make their own interpretation of what's happening here because it's very vague. Mm -hmm. But for me, I was thinking like, was she about to go to Joel? I read it like, as like she was just going to leave and – if Chris doesn't stop her now, then she's going to leave forever. Like leave the, Sicily. Yeah. yeah. The th problem that I'm kind of having with this whole thing is that it seems like for the past four episodes, there is a big like, oh, this relationship isn't going to work. I messed up. <laughs> you know, the foundations of it are broken. We can't do it. And at the end, they always say like, wait a second. No, I realize we it. Can you are, it we yeah. can make it work. We can make it work. You're the one. And it's like back to square one of the next episode. And it just keeps doing it that. Keeps and, repeating. And, yeah, and now on this one, it just, it, it kind of just repeats that same song and dance. And I think that's why I'm not as drawn in on this plot line, especially since I don't really know what's at stakes here. Yeah. Cause I thought, I thought we were chill from last episode. I thought, <laughs> I thought we were chill were for good. the last, last one yeah. too. Everything seems to be chill and then it's not. Why is it changing at the beginning of every episode? I do like what you just said, how it's like, 
maybe we take it as Maggie was going to leave Sicily because that was one of our that was one of our magic Christmas land predictions. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if Maggie left Sicily? Like she starts a, a whole new chapter in her life for something else. That uh, I mean, this sounds dumb, but we made it sound much better when we were talking about it last <laughs> episode. But that could be a thing, and that I think that would make for a v- much more interesting situation between Chris and Maggie if we saw that where we saw the moment where Maggie's like, I got this opportunity. I think I should jump on it. You know, like I'm a, you know, I've only got what, like a month left as a mayor or something, you know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. I'm about to be done with mayor or like, maybe she's like, I can leave and you know, Eugene will be mayor. It's fine. Like our Ruth Ann, like someone else will take my place. Um, so it's not a huge deal. She's like, I think I might want to jump on this. And Chris, like, maybe you come with me or maybe Chris is like, wanting her to stay, but he can't bring himself to ask her. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of things I would like to see. I like the, I guess I like how they, I'm happy that they end up together. I get, what am I saying? Like I would, I wish that Joel would be here, but I'm happy that it ends on a happy note. That's what I'm trying to say. But I would have much more liked to see the uncertainty of like Maggie leaving and Chris not knowing if he should ask her to stay or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think, okay, we're getting to this final let's try to reimagine northern exposure type of thing but when you mentioned joel that got me thinking it's like how do we incorporate joel into this episode organically realistically how would we do it and i thought you know what why don't you just do it in a very northern exposure way and just have him appear in a dream sequence Mm. so maybe rabbi shulman doesn't solve all of michelle's problems and then joel comes in as like the figment like that dream sequence and he has to guide her. And like she's like, wait, I just met like your rabbi. And he's like, Joel's like, oh, Rabbi Shulman? Oh, yeah, he's told me so much. Like he, you know, really guided me out of my like darkest depths whenever I was stuck in the bottom of a fish. And she's like, what fish? And, you know, they have like a little banner like that. <laughs> and then Joel could also deliver the lines to help guide Michelle. Be like, you know, it's just it's very important that you just choose a decision and go forward from there. And then from there, Joel can also like pop into Chris mm-hmm. or Maggie. It doesn't really matter which one. I guess it has to be Chris because we haven't seen Maggie this much. If we restructured <laughs> the episode, maybe we can introduce Maggie yeah, at some point at the beginning, one, but whatever. Away, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like Joel could also pop into there again, yeah. like a dream sequence type of thing. But he also guides them on mm-hmm. there in some way. I think that'd be like such a, I don't know, it's a nice little thing for Joel. I, I can I think it'd be, I definitely think it'd be cool to see Joel again. Yeah, especially since they mentioned him, I felt a little right. They mentioned him, so it's like, <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Well, we do get a final montage to the song "Our Town" by Iris Dement, and um, this has been definitely a big a big fan favorite moment. A lot of people may dislike the final episode, but still love this song, and. Uh, actually, I thought it was pretty interesting. I know for at least one uh, Moose Fest, Iris Dement was like featured and performed, oh. probably on multiple Moose Fest. I would assume. Huh. I think that's pretty cool. Um, it, this song, you know, and this artist is so heavily connected to the show. But I just was trying to jot down as quickly as I could all the things that we see during this um, this final montage in this song. Uh, Maggie and Chris are dancing, um, I think is what kind of maybe starts it off. He asks her to dance. 
Ed is back at home and he's like playing with his TV. Maybe he's about to start to watch a tape. There's like a lyric in the song that talks about like some red lights and we see the exterior of the brick at night. And then inside, Shelly and Holling and Randy are, you know, getting home. We see the red lights of K-Bear. We see a green light of the Sicily Chapel. We see Ruthann and Walt uh, closing down the general store and coming outside. And Walt fixes Ruthann's collar and they walk off. We see Maurice and Barbara walking upstairs. Um, I think this is in Maurice's house. Not yeah, at, it's in yeah, Maurice's house. Not at the lodge. Um, but they're going up the stairs and Maurice stops, I think, and just like looks up as he's standing on the staircase. Marilyn is having breakfast with her mom. We see the exterior of Joel's cabin, which is of course now Phil and Michelle's cabin. They're inside, uh, by the fireplace, give each other a kiss, drinking wine. Uh, we see two dogs chasing each other into That's the true. night. I love this, uh, the dogs running down uh, main street of Sicily. That's very characteristic of of Sicily, of Northern Exposure. We see a full moon. We see a cemetery. We see Rosalind's cafe. We see Chris and Maggie dancing in, in Maggie's living room. We see Marilyn uh, looking out a window and she draws down the window shade. And we see Morty the Moose walking around at night in Sicily. And um, that's the end of our episode. That's the end of Northern Exposure as a series. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was definitely moved by the song. I think it's a very powerful song. I think the images are great, but I think overall just the words and the tone of the song is what is really giving me that feeling, mm -hmm. you know? What were your thoughts of this this closing here? It's good. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to be like, it's bad. <laughs> like, I yeah. think it's a great way to tie up a season finale Pretty good for a series finale as well. Overall, it's definitely not my least like season finale. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I would say it's up there. It, it is a powerful one to end and emotional. Yeah, it's a very emotional ending. I feel like that is a thing. It's almost like a trope at a certain point with Northern Exposure episodes, but it, I think the show does it really well by having very powerful and affecting endings. And I think there are moments, maybe in the later seasons, where it feels like they're trying to like tug at you. It's maybe they're reaching a little too hard, a little too far, trying a little too hard to evoke a strong emotional response for the ending, or it's like, they're like, okay, how are we gonna end the episode and make you really feel it? Sometimes to me it feels, what's the word, disingenuous, but a lot of times I think, I don't want to put it down. I think the show is very effective at delivering those powerful endings. And this is one of them. Yeah, it is a, um, it is a powerful moment. I think the, the lyrics in the song do give a sort of finality, sense of finality, sense of ending, a sense of community. I want to say, I'm not looking at the lyrics, but I want to say there are some words kind of talking about maybe leaving the town or maybe like the sun setting on the town. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. It's like the song seems to talk about a sense of a community and belonging to our town. And then later it says my town, but it also seems as if the town is maybe closing down or we're walking away from it as well. That's what I got. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Like it's a nod to both the characters that they're going to be here and a nod to us that like, we're never going to get 
another view of Sicily again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is definitely a tearjerker. Not, I don't know if you would call it that, but it's definitely, it's definitely a hard, a strong feeling I would say. But before we close it out for this episode, Charles, and we are going to be back to talk about the series retrospective, just the series overall for another episode. So we'll have a lot more to talk about overall, the series, the podcast. But since we aren't having a formal guest on this episode, I did reach out to the internet to see some thoughts about uh, this final episode of Northern Exposure. I went to a Club NX on Facebook and I wrote a post saying that Charles and I are getting together soon to watch and discuss the finale episode of Northern Exposure. So before we do, we wanted to hear from the fans. What are your takeaways from the finale and the series overall? So I figured we could read a couple uh, a couple comments from this post. Okay, let's go ahead and get into some of these comments. I'm going to hand the phone to you, Charles, because I've got yeah. it pulled up. So... So I would just say scroll through, maybe find a couple that you like, and you can read them. All right, let's start with the very top one. It's a banger. It says, <laughs> I don't watch season six. It doesn't exist in my universe. <laughs> yeah, so. It's surprising a lot of those, but then there's a lot of people who do um, who do say that some of the best episodes are in season six and are even after the quest, which I yeah. thought was interesting. Uh, we have another one. I'm um, sorry, I should attribute these. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is attributed to Kathy Copeland Patton Jr., now on this one, it's going to be from Chuck Wheeler, who wrote, I always liked the last episode, Love Iris Demand Song. Then Liz Schroeder Chesney wrote, I love the rabbi. Brian Larson wrote, the series I loved, but the last two seasons, especially the final season, generally don't have the same spirit as the rest. Too many things happen that seem out of character, and there isn't enough genuine growth of the characters. I haven't watched in a while. I need to, but it will make me sad. K.L. Hoffman wrote, I literally felt like I was saying goodbye to my friends. When Joel was dreaming about going back to the big city, I was getting anxious. I visited Rosalind outside of Seattle about four years by myself without my family. It was stunning and eerie at the same time. It literally felt like a mecca for me. Some kind of pilgrimage. I've got pictures, but they're nothing compared to my memories my family hadn't already put down roots nine years ago in southern Virginia after we left New York, I would have completely relocated out there, dragged my airstream, and waited on the front steps for Maggie to come by. <laughs> and Beth Sumner Wall wrote, a main character, the town itself, wasn't present, and that bothers me. Hauling had no great hauling lines, while he just grunted in rut, and he and Shelley weren't present for most of the episode. Maggie's presence was obviously missing, and Chris was a complete jerk. So many things were wrong about it as a final episode. Yeah, that is a good point. We pointed out how Holling doesn't really say anything in the episode, and the town of Sicily is kind of absent. I mean, we get a moment or two in the brick, but the thrust of this episode takes place outside of the town of Sicily. It's very interesting. And Nancy Klasky wrote, the series was unique and progressive for the time it was on. It was, and remains, my favorite show of any U.S. TV series, although Reservation Dogs has tied with it. I never bought the sixth season on DVD, and just recently, I finally watched the last few episodes. I wish they had just ended it when Joel left. Something was definitely missing in the writing and content after that. Chris and Maggie definitely did not belong together. All right, Charles is handing me the phone. I'm going to read some more of these comments. Let's see. 
Aaron Dayalan says, I consider the quest to be the final episode. Arthur Loic, it was a good episode, but I would have loved to have seen Brandon Falsey reunite for a six episode final season to bring a deeper closure, especially with Maggie and a horny grunting hauling getting little airtime. I would have loved to have seen Joel return to Sicily for Ruth Ann and Walt's wedding, question mark, and see his response to Maggie and Chris as a couple. Oh, interesting. So much more could have been done to give the fans peace and a better resolution to these amazing characters. Kate Blake says, I was fine with the last episode. Maggie and Chris were truly Alaska people. Both were wanderers and found a home there. That's nice. I loved the song and the feeling at the end. The rest of the episodes were a hot mess. Terry and Paul were a bad fit for the show, like near beer or polyester. They were supposed to be good, but they were nothing like the real deal. Tanali Hrenak. Tanali was a guest on our podcast before. When you don't know where you're going, all roads will take you there. Not verbatim, but that quote from the episode continues to resonate with me. Amelia Sibedra says, The ending was perfect for me, but maybe the flying man surprising Marilyn... Ed reuniting with his dad. I think they're trying to say maybe that could be an interesting way to end it. Gisa Lisa, I didn't care for it. Overexposure of Hayden. Why does he have a role in the finale? <laughs> Sorry, we like making fun of Hayden a lot. Um, where's Marilyn? Mm, she doesn't do a whole lot. Chris is acting like a child. Hauling rutting is ridiculous. I like seeing the rabbi back. Overall, I felt it wasn't a fitting ending for a show I had enjoyed so much. And okay, I'm going to do one last one. This is from Paul Madavi Bernstein. It's mostly a hollow shell of the glorious past. However, the rabbi quote about being lost and Iris's song are timeless. Maurice's content look at the end is a sweet resolve. To quote Elton now, take me to the pilot and begin again. So yeah, we got to start start all over again from the pilot. <laughs> um, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, there's so much, okay. I feel like we have still so much to talk about and this is going to be what we will be talking about in the next podcast when we're talking about the, uh, the series retrospective, we have plenty to talk about. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just excited that we've made it to the end here and the show is finally now available for streaming. I'm getting more and more over these past few days, friends are texting me saying that they just started the show for the first time. And that's exciting. You know, I think I would have loved for the show to be available, more available, you know, as we were doing this podcast, like earlier on in the podcast, but it's almost sort of like a perfect timing for it to finally be available. Now that we're wrapping up the podcast, people are actually finally being able to watch it. Yeah. I mean, Charles, how do you feel? Now that we finished the, the final episode. <laughs> I guess sad. Yeah. I, I think that that's the only natural response to come from me. Uh, sad that it's ending. Sad that our podcast is coming to an end. Sad that we can't share in this experience again, nor can we ever see these characters again in a brand new light. And in some weird way, I kind of wish that... I wish I could go back to 2019 and watch the episodes and analyze them with the vigor and the intensity that we displayed later on in the season. We've made no secret of the fact that we don't think we were very good in the beginning. 
Oh, <laughs> I, I don't mean to jump in. I wouldn't change too much about those early episodes. I, I think, uh, I think we've definitely gotten better at podcasting for sure. I don't think we're, I don't think we're like masters of the art or anything, but, um, what I mean to say is, uh, I feel like if I went back and tried to record another episode on uh, another, if I tried to record another podcast on an episode that we've already covered, I would probably say a lot of the same things. There'd probably be some new things too, and maybe some new insights, but I think we were really tapping on a lot of what's important in those early episodes. But I think so. we have gotten better. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree with you, but I don't know, man. Like sometimes <laughs> I just think about those early episodes and how good we had it and then like how much I miss. Oh, because I'm those like, episodes are very good. Right. Yeah. And like now I'm yeah. now, you know, when I think about them again, I'm like, oh, there's like this thematic thread that's running through it yeah. that I didn't pick up on because I was an idiot. And like now I realize and I'm like, oh, that's so brilliant. Like and it, it feels, I should have been talking about this more. And it feels like, I mean, I also could be wrong, but to me it feels like some of these episodes in the later seasons that fans don't really like as much the later seasons, they feel like when I'm watching it, it's like, I feel like I have less to say about it because it's like not really right. a whole lot's going on here. I mean, there's definitely things happening, but if you go back to some of those great older favorite episodes, you know, some of my favorite episodes, they are just amazing. It's amazing television. This is the kind of stuff I want to talk about in our series retrospective. I don't want to, I don't want to let it all out here. <laughs> so we do need to wrap it up, but I guess I can say, I agree with you, Charles. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit sad for us to finally be reaching the end, but Maybe now more than ever, it feels like there could be a reboot or a revival. You know, now the show's on streaming. Maybe a new audience will grow. Maybe more people will be interested. Maybe it'll make sense for some sort of continuation. And again, maybe maybe we don't need that, but that's something we could talk about in our series retrospective. Yeah, if the show <laughs> ever gets rebooted, we will be there yeah, we have with to. bells and... <laughs> yeah. With bells and whistles <laughs> at like the moment those episodes dropped, episodes coming the next day. We're going to like be analyzing <laughs> oh, okay, it. Okay, we're promising that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we might as well. We need to. We need to be right there on the ground floor. Uh, fingers crossed, maybe that that happens or at least that this show gets more attention. That's kind of, that was our mission statement. So I'm glad to see that it's much more available and hopefully it finds many more new audiences. Charles, let's cap it at that. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you very soon about the series overall, about the podcast. Next episode, Charles, we're going to be talking about it all. So I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.